So, all right, we're going to start with, all right, here we go, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And I put it at the very top, and, and, I, and I wrote these out, how to read, understand, and apply the Gospel of Matthew, and try to simplify everything we can. I'll go through as much as possible the content of, of the outline, and of the handout, of the notes, and if you're listening on the podcast, sorry that you don't have any access to any of these handouts. Um, the first thing is, this, I'm going to mention one thing as, as, a, as a side note, as an anecdote that's going to lay the foundation for like everything that I'm going to present in, in terms of this. Uh, there's a, 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 a sociologist, a Christian scholar, who presented the idea that um, much of evangelical Christianity um, presents what's called, what, what he calls, and I, I hope I spell it correctly, therapeutic, uh, is that right? E-U, all right, uh, moralistic, and big words, right? Don't worry about it. Deism. And what, what, what J.K.A. Smith, uh, uh, Smith says is much of evangelical Christianity is therapeutic, moralistic deism. And very simply, and, and this is what I think we're going to be speaking against as we open up the New Testament, so I want to lay that foundation. Deism is the idea that God exists, but he's distant, right? Uh, remember a lot of the founding fathers that have become very popular in the 1700s, 1800s. God exists, he created the world, he set it as a clock, and it's just simply unwinding according to God's laws. And the, and the way God has it, but God does not intervene. There are no miracles. So if you're familiar with Thomas Jefferson, cut all the miracles out of the Bible. He, he liked the teachings of Jesus, but didn't believe in the miracles. Right. So the idea of deism is God's up there, and he may sometimes be involved down here, but he really isn't. We shoot prayers up to God, and we hope that he answers them, but we're down here and he's up there. And that's very prevalent in a lot of evangelical Christianity. This idea that God's up there and we just kind of, And sometimes when he answers our prayers, we call it a miracle. Right? All right. Moralism is the idea that you should be good. Right? Uh, do good things. Do this and don't do this. Uh, you know, tell the truth and don't lie. Uh, be, be more. And so a lot of our preaching is be good people, don't do this, don't do that, and do do this. Uh, it's, it's just this moralism. Um, therapeutic is the idea that, um, and if you do all this, um, things will be well with you. Uh, God cares for you, and, and, and you'll be happier, uh, and, and, and you'll, be, you'll be better off. And so this idea of therapeutic, moralistic deism is this, the way many Christians and many in the evangelical church approach their view of God. Right? And I think we're going to see in the scriptures, of course, and obviously I think Christian theology, of course, of course affirms, this is not true at all. God, uh, where is God present at? Everywhere. Everywhere. Right? We, see, we say he's in heaven, but biblically speaking, heaven's all around us because heaven's where God dwells. It's another realm or dimension beyond space, time, and matter. You can't go up and just keep going and eventually you're going to get there. Right? Which is kind of what we think though, right? Instead, God's, you know, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? As the psalmist says, right? If I make my bed in the depths, thou art there. If I make my bed, you know, uh, and show that it doesn't, you're everywhere and you're always, and you're always uh, present. All right, now, as we begin our study of the Gospel of Matthew tonight, and, and the Gospels, we need to, first off, before we go too deep into Matthew, and I want to be careful because I'm going to love the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to spend as much time in Mark tonight as we can. Um, so, but, but it's going to be, it's going to be hard to get through Matthew, and I, I, I know myself and how it's going to go. We really need to give a background of the Old Testament world. Remember last time we mentioned the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all begin by connecting the story to the Old Testament story, right? Matthew begins with the genealogy. Mark begins by quoting the book of Isaiah uh, and Exodus and Malachi. Uh, um, John begins with in the beginning, which is referencing the Genesis and the cre So we, we see this great connection between the Old Testament story uh, and the biblical and the gospel stories. Right. The most significant passage in the Old Testament to be familiar with to help us understand the New Testament, and again, slow me down if I go too quick, questions at any time, uh, any interjections, that, that's fine as well, is Deuteronomy 27 through 30. All right, Deuteronomy 27 through 30. And we're going to look at Deuteronomy 27 through 30 uh, very briefly here at the, at the top uh, of your notes there. Uh, here you go, Ralph, in case you didn't get this earlier today. We just printed a copy out for you. I had no problem. Okay, there you go, good. All right. Now, what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy is this. Deuteronomy, the word deuteronomos, means second law. Deuteronomy is the giving of the law again. Right? And tell me if, if I need to slow down on this as well. But Moses leads the Israelites out of, the, out of Egypt. 
He leads him to the, Sinai, to the Sinai Peninsula and God gives Moses the law and that's the book of Exodus. But we find out that when Moses comes down from the mountainside, they're building a golden calf and Moses is like, okay, guess what? You guys don't get to go to the promised land. We're going to wait 40 years and your descendants will grow up after you and they will enter the promised land. Okay. So 40 years of wandering and at the end of the 40 years of wandering, Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land and so God gives them the law again. That's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the law book that the Israelites take into Canaan with them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, it's the law. And it is by far the most significant book in the Old Testament. The prophets, Isaiah and everybody, and we won't go into too much detail on this, are, are always referring back to Deuteronomy. The prophets come along and say, you're not doing Deuteronomy. Or you are. And that's why God's blessing you. But most often we know what's happening. You're not doing Deuteronomy. right? You're not following the law. All right. So the prophets are constantly dwelling in the language and promises of Deuteronomy. Right. In Deuteronomy, remember the second law, the law is also synonymous in a sense with, with a covenant. Okay. Now, the, uh, the word covenant gets thrown around, uh, and, and I would define covenant as, as an agreement between two parties. Okay. But it's not like a treaty, because a treaty is one nation against another nation. They're kind of equals, and we don't really want to go to war, because I'm not sure who's going to win, and we might lose in the middle of all this. Not worth it. Let's make a peace treaty. Right. A covenant is often with a king and his peoples. Okay? So one of the parties is clearly superior to the other. All right. And the biblical covenant, of course, it's God and Abraham, or God and Moses, or God and the Israelites. Right? Uh, that's a, a biblical covenant. All right, I'm hearing some echo. We're all, we're all inside, right? Now, the idea of the biblical covenant is... Uh, God says, here's the way it's going to work. I'm going to be your God. This is the covenant. And you're going to be my people. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you laws, and you're going to obey them. And if you do, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. And the blessings and curses, if we were doing an Old Testament course right now, we would be talking about land and family, land and family, land and family. Right? I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give you this family, right? And this offspring. And it's, uh, that's the central element of the biblical covenant is the promise of land and the promise of family. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Okay. Now, the essence of the biblical covenant, Deuteronomy in particular, but certainly throughout the biblical covenant is, is the way it's going to work is, is remember, God called Abraham for the sake of blessing the nations. And as we get in the Gospels, we're, this is going to be the problem. They had lost sight of that, right? And I think we discussed that a little bit last time, right? They lost sight of the fact that they were called to be a blessing to the nations. The way it was supposed to work is, if you obey my laws, I bless you, and then all the nations around you are going to go, look how great that nation is and how great their God must be. Let's join them. Right? Now, if you don't obey me, I'm going to have to curse you because I can't have my name blasphemed amongst the nations. They're going to go, the nation going to look at you guys and go, wow, they're a rebellious people, but they get blessed anyways. Their God must not be very powerful. So the whole idea is if you don't obey my covenant, my laws, you're blaspheming my name. You're supposed to make me known, and you're making me known as a disgrace. I'm going to have to punish you. Now, the blessings are land and family, so the curses are land and family. Namely that if you don't obey the covenant, I'm going to expel you from the land. Right? In fact, the book of Leviticus actually says the land will vomit you out. Right? The, the land's going to spew you out if you don't obey the covenant. Okay? Uh, and of course, there'll be consequences with, with, with the family and, and, and that aspect as well. All right, this is summarized then in Deuteronomy 27 through ch chapter 27 through 30. I don't know why my computer went to sleep. Sorry, I hope it doesn't mess things up. It did. So, uh, Deuteronomy tw chapters 27 through 30. Let's see if I can get this to come. Oh, here we go. All right, there we go. Um, through 30. And as you go through Deuteronomy 27 through 30, and I'll bring this part up on the screen just in a minute, but uh, what you're going to notice is, the, is the, the promise of blessings and the promise of curses. So I'll just put, I won't put this part up on the screen until we get to chapter 30. But as we go to Deuteronomy 27, uh, if you look in verse 15, it says, Cursed is the man who makes an, an idol. Verse 16, Cursed is the one who dishonors his father. Verse 17, Cursed is he who moves his name. Right? It's curses, 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 curses for disobeying the law. 28 are the blessings. Okay. Now, if you do these things, you will be blessed. So Deuteronomy 27, Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curses. As we move forward, however, what we find out as we go through Deuteronomy 29 is 
Moses tells Israelites, or God tells Moses, hey Moses, they're not actually going to do this. I'm going to tell you right now what they're going to do, right? And they're going to they're going to disobey. And so what I'm going to do is is I'm going to bring foreign nations in, and those foreign nations are going to come in and and conquer them and send them away into what's called the exile, right? And, and if you know your Old Testament story, right, the northern tribes of Israel are conquered by the Assyrians in 721 B.C., and the southern tribe of Judah is conquered by the Babylonians in 605 B.C., and then 586 B.C., the Babylonians come back and destroy the temple. I'm going to send you off into exile. Okay. So that's what 27, 28, and 29 in the book of Deuteronomy tell us now, right? If you, if you disobey curses, if you obey blessings... I know what you're going to do. You're going to disobey. Here's going to be the curses. I'm eventually going to have to kick you out of the land. Okay. Now, if you think about this, and the book of Ezekiel is dealing with this, and Jeremiah is dealing with this, and the, the prophets are dealing with this, and that is, let's say you're the tribe of Judah, and you've been carried away into exile in Babylon. It kind of looks like, well, you, there's just no hope any longer. I mean, we thought our God was the supreme God. We thought our God was the only God. But in reality, the Babylonian gods must be more powerful than our god because the Babylonians conquered us. And that's, in the ancient world, that's how it works. If I conquer you, my god's better than your god. And so the Israelites are sitting in, in Babylon in despair and in hopelessness, going, how are we going to get out of this? What's, what's going to happen? And the, there's no hope. And the prophets come along, like Hosea and others, with this hope of restoration. That God hasn't forgotten you. Remember what Deuteronomy says. If you don't obey the law, God's going to send you away. All right? But also remember what Deuteronomy says, and let's pick it up in Deuteronomy chapter 30 now. And I have this on the screen. So, uh, actually, I have an NIV on the screen, but if you don't mind, I'm going to change it just because I'm so much familiar with the New American Standard. <coughs> for, for this purpose, it's easier for me. All right, so Deuteronomy 30. So when it will be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. In other words, when you're in Babylon and the curses have come upon you and you remember what I said, right, verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God, right, and the word for return can be translated as repent. You repent, all right, and obey him with all your heart and all your soul, according to all that I've commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. Uh, verse uh, 5, The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Okay. So when you're in exile and you remember what God said and you repent, God will bring you back. And that's why the New Testament begins with repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is part and parcel wrapped up with this covenant promise that God made to Israel that I'm going to bring you back and restore you. Okay. Uh, now, we're going to go further with that uh, uh, here, here in just a bit, but while we're in Deuteronomy 30, let's uh, skip down now, because you're going to see this in the Gospel of Matthew here in a little bit, and some of you might recognize uh, what we're about, to, what, uh, where it is in Matthew, and, and, some, and I think many of you might not yet, but that's okay. All right, so now, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, of course, Paul's going to quote Deuteronomy 30. Um, uh, it's not in heaven. Well, uh, go into verse 11. This commandment which I command you today is not too difficult to, uh, for you, and is, nor is it out of your reach. It's not in the heaven that you should say who will go up for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe. This is Paul in the book of Romans that we may observe it, verse 13, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you. Uh, it's in your mouth and in your heart. Remember Paul, Romans 10, you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, right? And that, that's where Paul's getting that language from. But now look at verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to keep his judgments and his statutes and his, 
uh, his commandments and statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away after and worship other gods and serve them, I declare you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter it and to possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessings and the curse. So choose life. There you go. Choose life. Okay, now remember that part when we get to uh, a little bit later on in the, here in the Gospel of Matthew. So here's our context of the Old Testament story, what's happening in a nutshell. God made a covenant with Abraham ratifies that covenant with Moses, gives the covenant to Israelites, bless it and obey it and I'll bless you, disobey and I'll curse. Blessings and curse are the land and family, right? The prosperity uh, and the land and prosperity and the family. They disobey, God sends them into exile. Then while in exile, if they repent, God will bring them back. Okay. Now many of you might go, but if I recall the Old Testament story, don't they come back with Ezra and Nehemiah? I mean, that, the, the story doesn't seem to end with them in exile. They come back in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. All right, so let me bring up two verses very quickly here uh, uh, to kind of answer that question. Ezra 9, I got to remember exactly what verse it is. I want to say it's 34. Um, and I'm going to say no because I must have typed in something wrong. E-Z-R-A 9, Apparently, there's no 34. Let me find um, the verse. And Ezra, that's not the right one. Ezra 9, there isn't 34. 9, 9, 9. Ezra 9, 9. <coughs> Ezra 9, 9. And here's what, here's what Ezra says. Now remember, Ezra's the prophet. He's really kind of the guy in the Old Testament story, bringing it to a climax. He says, we are slaves. Yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us, but has extended, us, has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. And in other words, sorry folks, we might be back in the land. Remember, some of them are. Remember, Nehemiah wasn't, right? Mm -hmm. They had to go send for Nehemiah. All right. We might be back in the land, but this isn't the promise of restoration because we're still slaves. Restoration means God's our king and we have sovereignty over the land. But Persia's in control. So we're slaves. And Nehemiah, I think it's 9-9 also. It's, I remember it's the same verse. If I'm not mistaken, Nehemiah 9 9. Uh, nope. Let me look it up. Isaiah 9, uh, uh, Nehemiah 9, and it's verse uh, 36. That's the one that was 36. I know it's one of them. 9 36. Behold, we are slaves today as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and of its bounty. Behold, we are slaves in it. So the Old Testament story then seems to end with sorry, we, some of us might be back in the land. But the restoration hasn't happened yet. We're slaves in the land. <clears throat> Why not? Because they haven't repented. Repentance must precede restoration. And you see that in Daniel. If you ever read Daniel chapter 9, Daniel repents for the nation. And God's like, sorry, Daniel, that was great for you. The day you repented, God heard you, but it's too late. I'm going to increase the punishment on the Israelites 70 times 7. Yeah. Put the punishment back on them. That's all of them, even for some of them that really, um, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a collective. It's collective. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a collective. That doesn't mean that there aren't individuals that, 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 that you know, we talk about the nation and we say, well, the, the nation's in sin. That doesn't mean every single person in the nation. Or the nation's righteous. That doesn't mean every single person in the nation. That's what Jeremiah is dealing with, right? You guys all look righteous because Josiah's in power, but you're just doing it to please the king. So everything looks good on the outside, but technically it's not, it's corrupt. So vice versa. So does that answer your question, Kevin? Yeah, I'll just say, just, uh, yeah. that it was a collective, you know, area yeah, yeah, yeah. punished. That, that's right, and that's gonna be important for something that we're gonna, uh, we're gonna go over in just a minute, in fact, as well. Any other questions? All right, here we go. So, so looking at the Gospel of Matthew then, with that in our background, Jeremiah 31 might come up later as well. Uh, let's note the purpose of the, of the book of uh, Gospel of Matthew, and let's note, first off, the Gospel of Matthew begins now, it begins with a genealogy. Oops, sorry. Right, it begins with a genealogy, and we're going to go over that genealogy in just a bit. But uh, Ma Matthew 1.20, so verse 18 is kind of the very first verse of the narrative, right? 
The narrative of Matthew begins in Matthew 118. In 118, God appears, an angel appears to Joseph. Don't hey, hey, guess what? Mary's pregnant, but it's all gonna be good. And and she's gonna give birth to a child, verse 23, a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? God, so the, the gospel begins with a story about how the child is God with us. Now, we'll note the real significance of that when we do the Gospel of John uh, in, in a couple weeks. Right. But now let's turn to Matthew 28, verse 20. Okay. And uh, we'll come back to Matthew 28, 16 through 20, I hope, shortly. Uh, but look at the very last verse of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus goes up on a mountainside. That's important to note, and I'll explain why in a, in a bit. He gives him a new covenant. I'll explain what I mean by that in, in just a bit. And he says in verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, let me explain. Matthew begins by saying, the child will be God with us. Matthew ends by saying, I'm going to be with you always. And we know the child is God. It begins with God's with you, and God will be with you always. This is an ancient author's way of framing a discourse or a narrative or we're going to see this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, here just a little bit Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is we call it the Sermon on the Mount but we shouldn't limit it to 5, 6, and 7 because Matthew's going to frame it he, and what, what they'll do when they frame something is they begin something with a certain statement and then they'll end it with a certain statement and that's their way of, of framing it, see they don't have chapter breaks they don't have paragraph headers <coughs> Right? They, they, you know, they don't have the, any other way of, of marking a section. Remember, it's also something that's read aloud. The hearer has to hear a beginning and an end. Right? The Gospel of Mark, which we'll do in, in, in an hour or so, is um, uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark begins with uh, uh, Jesus, this is the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 15, 39, the centurion says, Behold, Surely this man was the son of God. It begins and it ends with the son of God. Now you might go, but Mark 15, 39 is not the end. There's like 20 verses. It doesn't matter. It's close enough. It's a framing of a section or a whole section or, in this case, the whole book. And we're going to see this in, num in numerous books in the New Testament as well. The, gospel, uh, the book of Acts begins and ends with the kingdom of God. Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. Matthew 28, uh, Acts 28, verse uh, 30 Paul was in Rome preaching about the kingdom of God. That's the last verse in the book of Acts. So Acts 1-3, Acts 28-30, it's a, it's a way of framing something. So what's Matthew's gospel about? It's about God being with us. Right? God, and now note, by the way, this is the essence of the covenant. What's the covenant? I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. Right? And if we were looking in Leviticus 26, if you want to write it down, it's a, it's a good reference to be aware of. Leviticus 26, 11 through 13. Uh, and it says, And um, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. right? And I'll be with you, and I'll walk among you. Which is the same reference to what God walked in the Garden of Eden. It's this Eden restored, that God's presence being restored uh, is this big cut. So I'll, I'll keep repeating that. So it, it might went right by you right now, but that's okay. Uh, here we go. So the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is God with us. Note that this frames the Gospel of Matthew, letter A. Letter B. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. If you go through chapters 1 and chapters 2 in the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to continue to see... Oh, I am there. All right. I'm going to use... I'm going to do... Fulfilled. All right. And, uh, and we'll see... Oh, it doesn't come up enough. All right. Um, you'll, you'll note five fulfillment passages or five passages in the Gospel of, in the beginning of Matthew that all begin with or all include a reference to the fact that this was to fulfill the scriptures. So Matthew 1, the angel appears to Joseph and says the child should be called um, uh, Emmanuel uh, and, and because this is to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah says, verse 22. Isaiah, Matthew 1, 22. This is to fulfill what the Lord spoke to the prophet Isaiah saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. Matthew 2, the wise men visit. All right? And the wise men visit and go, hey, where is this king to be born at? And they say, oh, it's in Bethlehem. Verse 5, because that's what, that's what was written by the prophet. You are Bethlehem. 
Uh, next, uh, next story is uh, Herod's going to uh, kill all the children. And this was to, uh, let me see, actually, uh, I want to see, see if I can find the word fulfilled there. I don't see it quickly, so I'm going to skip down. Uh, the, Jesus escapes to Egypt, uh, verse 15 of chapter 2. He escapes to Egypt because this is what the prophet, uh, that the word of the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. The child comes back. Uh, oh, here it is. Herod slaughters the babies is in verses 16 and 17. Herod slaughters the babies in verse 16 because verse 17 says, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And then he quotes Jeremiah. And then when Jesus comes back, he, they escape to now. They go back to Nazareth, right? Because Herod Arch uh, um, uh, Archelaus was in power. Verse 20, 23 says, of chapter 2 says, and he came and resided in a city called Nazareth, and that what was spoken to the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew is telling the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. Now that's an important point. Okay? And if we were to do a course on, on biblical interpretation, we would spend a lot of time on this. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean is that Matthew is not saying Jesus fulfilled that verse and that verse and that verse. That's what we often do. Right? We look to the Old Testament and we find a verse or maybe a small passage like Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Right. No, no doubt that Isaiah 53 is a reference to the cross of Jesus. Right. Like, a, like a lamb uh, before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Even Peter quotes that. Right. We often pick verses or maybe small passages and say, fulfilled by Jesus, fulfilled by Jesus, fulfilled by Jesus. But the biblical writers are telling us that the story of the Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus. The whole story. Jesus is Israel. He's not just a child of Israel. He is Israel. And we'll see this as we go through a couple of stories as, as we proceed. Um, in particular, uh, so I'm going to save a little bit of that conversation uh, 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 for, for just a moment. And I can show you uh, really something really neat in chapters 1 through 5. And if I have time, I, I will. But I won't now because I know how I go. And I get going and then I don't finish. And then we'll be at like 11. And I'll be having fun. And you guys will all be asleep. And it'll be great. So, um, all right. So here we go. This is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. No, chapters 1 through 2 have five fulfillment passages. All right. Chapter 121. He will save the people from their sins. And actually, to illustrate this point, I'm going to turn to a story in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, even though we'll do Mark here in just a little bit. Mark chapter 2. Okay, and I think, Kevin, this will touch on, on the, kind of the question you were asking about, this, this collectiveness of the people. It's the way they look. They don't look individualistically, which is a Western way of looking. They look at some, them as a collective, as a society. In Mark chapter 2, there's a story of a paralytic being healed. Right? Um, and uh, uh, th what happens is the crowds are coming around Jews so much so that they can't get this paralyzed guy in the house. So remember the story, they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down to the roof. Okay? Uh, four guys do that. They lower him down, verses uh, four, unable to get him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Verse five, Jesus seeing their faith. Note, he's not seeing the paralyzed man's faith, the, man, the, the faith of the four men who are lowering him down. He said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. How does that fit with our theology? In my theology, if you want your sins forgiven, Dan, you have to repent and have faith in Jesus. You don't get your sins forgiven because these guys over here have faith. That seems to be what Jesus is doing. Okay. But if we look at this as a story of Israel, of Israel in exile... And in order to come back from exile, you must repent. And what's Deuteronomy 30 say? He's gonna, I'm going to circumcise your heart. Right? I'm, if you repent, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. And I'm going to circumcise your heart. And we'll see this in the Gospel of Luke when we do that ne the next time. Um, and, and Jesus quote, goes in the Gospel in um, the city of Nazareth in Luke 4. And he says, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And he quotes Isaiah 61, and he says, I came to set the captives free, to proclaim uh, uh, sight to the blind, um, and, 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 and for those who are paralyzed, healing and wellness. You see, the forgiveness of sins goes alongside the healings of, and restoration. 
So I'm going to heal this man because your sins, the sins of the nation, are being forgiven because of their faith. The faithfulness of some within Israel means that the restoration of Israel is taking place and a, a sign of the restoration of Israel is taking place is the healing of this paralyzed man, which what Jesus does in Luke 4. Yeah. So in the Sorry. text, the book talks about this collectiveness, this there you idea. Go. Is that what you're referring exactly. to? Exactly. So everybody that's in the house, Israel would be the house. The paralytic would be a person that's in the house. And he, and he receives a sign of the blessing of the covenant, of, of the restoration of the covenant, which Jesus is a new covenant, okay. right? Uh, through his healing. Now, there doesn't deny the individual nature of it, because this is what we're going to see in the Gospels now. And that is this. The Pharisees don't repent. You see, if you don't repent, you don't get to come in. So when Jesus began, and we did this, I think we discussed this a little bit last time. When, when the Gospel begins, especially in Mark chapter 1, repent, the kingdom of God's at hand, the Pharisees say, I ain't got no need to repent. Right? Well, if you ain't got no need to repent, and you don't repent, you can't come in. So, remember one of the parables? So go out to the highways and the byways, because the banquet's being prepared, and the people that were invited aren't coming in. Right? Because some within Israel are not repenting. And so let's invite everybody and, and bring them into this banquet as well, right? Um, um, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew as, as well as in Luke. All right, so he will save the people from their sins in Matthew one twenty one. then, is this collectiveness of the fact that the people of Israel have been set in this exile because of their sins, meaning I will save the people from their sins is I will bring the exile to an end. I will bring the restoration of God's people in accordance with the promises of Deuteronomy and the Old Testament. It, it's this collectiveness, not this I'll save the people from their sins in terms of their individual sins that cause them to go to hell. That's true also, but that's not what he's getting at here. It's their sins that cause them to be in exile. It's their sins that cause them to be distant from me or not in relationship with me. I will be God among you. Right? That's the essence of the covenant uh, and, and the covenant promise. So here we go. The story begins in uh, Matthew chapter 1 uh, with the first words, of, and, that's, and I'll bring this up on the screen now. Matthew 1, 1, so we can see it here. All right. And I, need, I don't have a laser, but that's all right. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, uh, a New American Standard says, the record of the genealogy of, uh, of Jesus, uh, and that Bible, NIV, the genealogy of Jesus. All right. Uh, you might not know Greek enough, but uh, Biblos, uh, you can maybe recognize Biblos, the word book. All right. Uh, Geneseos. It's the same word for Genesis, essentially. The book of Genesis wouldn't be a correct interpretation. It's a wooden and, a, and, and too literalistic of a translation. The better translation would be the book of the genealogy. Uh, but the book of Genesis, or the genealogy, see how, see how it, uh, of Jesus, of Jesus Christu, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the gospel begins by, quoting, by referencing the book of Genesis. An identical phrase occurs in Genesis 2.4 um, and in Genesis uh, 5.1, and that's something important in the book of Genesis, but we'll, we'll skip it now. Now, let's note this next thing, and that's this. If you have a, if you have a, a printed Bible, and I know most of you do. I can't find my cursor. Where is it at? It's too small. Up on the screen. Um, there it is. Oh, I just lost everything. Um, come on. All right, there we go. All right, and I'll go back to Matthew 1. If you have a printed Bible, what you may notice in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 is most printed Bibles, and they should do this, put paragraph breaks in the genealogy. Verses 2 through the middle of verse 6 is one paragraph. Verse, middle of verse 6 through verse 11 is a second paragraph. And verses 12 through 16 is a third paragraph. Do your Bible, all of your Bibles do that or just some of them? Yes? Any of your, anybody not have a paragraph? You see it? Mine has a darker number. Oh, oh, okay, there you go. That's, that, that's their way. So everyone's a paragraph, but the dark, yeah, that's still, still doing it. All right, so what you'll notice is that the genealogy of Jesus is broken up into three paragraphs. Verses 2 through 6. Verse 2 begins with Abraham, and it ends with David. The first paragraph. Notice that, right? The second paragraph begins with David, and it ends with the exile. 
the deportation to Babylon, verse 11. The third paragraph begins with the deportation to Babylon, and it ends with Jesus. Abraham to David, David to the exile, the exile to Jesus. See what I'm talking about? The exile's over. See? And now, how do we know that this is legit? Because verse 17 tells us. This isn't actually hard. Uh, uh, verse 17. Uh, look what he says. I'll bring it up on the screen. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David to the de deportation of Babylon are 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah are 14 generations. He tells us how to outline the genealogy. I have 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. What does that mean? The exile's over. The exile's ending in Jesus. Now, I put on the outline, I believe, right? The genealogy begins with Abraham, because it's the story of Israel. Go ahead, Ralph. Seven and 14. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. One second. Excellent. Good, very perceptive. Very, good job. One second. Um, I was almost not going to go there, but, but I, I'm always tempted. All right, so here we go. Letter uh, small a. The genealogy begins with Abraham. That's the story of Israel, right? Abraham's the father of Israel, right? The father of the, uh, of the covenant begins in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham. The second period begins with David. Thus, it's the kingly. So he's the center. this is the fulfillment of the king, the promise of a, of a kingship through David. And the third period begins with the exile. Thus, the long story of Israel has come to its fulfillment with Jesus, a new David, who will rescue his people from their exile, that is, save his people from their sins. So the next story then says, he will save his people from their sins, in verse 21, and it's a reference to the, to the restoration of the exile. Does that make sense? It's not to be read as this individualistic, save the people from my individual sins that caused me to go to hell, even though that's true. It's the context of, save the people from the sins that caused them to be sent into exile to begin with. But we know, as we go through Mark especially, right, that you have to repent for you individually to be part of it. Right? Make sense? Okay. Now, Ralph has observed that 14 generations, and by the way, here's the deal. And, and you may not like this, but this is the way they did it, right? And, and we're good with it, because it, it works for them. It doesn't have to be according to our standards and our rules. If you take the genealogies of the Old Testament, you will note that Matthew is skipping names. There are not actually 14 generations from Abraham to David. There's a whole lot more than that. And there are not 14 generations from David to the exile. There's a whole lot. Matthew skips names. Now, it's customary to say so-and-so begat so-and-so, and it's actually the grandfather of, that, that's normal. But Matthew skips names, obviously one, to make the genealogy readable, but two, because he only wants 14 generations. Hmm. That's just the way he's doing it. Like it or not. Now why? Because 14 is seven times two. So the first paragraph has seven and seven, the second has seven and seven, and the third has seven and seven. You have six sevens. The seventh seven begins with Jesus. And seven is perfection, right? We'll see, we'll see this more specifically in Revelation. And you might be more comfortable when the book of Revelation does this, but it's actually, done, you know, it's actually found in the, in the New Testament as well, outside the, um, the book of Revelation. The Gospel of John has seven I am's. Uh, John has seven days, apparently, in chapters 1 and 2. So, so you see numbers being used this way on occasion. Uh, and what I'll say in, in, my study of, in our study of, um, uh, of uh, uh, the book of Revelation is just be careful. Yeah. Not to read too much into it as though it's pointing to us to some secret number system that tells us about the end kind, the, the second coming of Jesus tomorrow. No, it's telling us about Christ. When the numbers point us to Jesus and clarify and confirm or affirm something dynamic about Christ, then we know we're in good stead. Right? So seven I am's in the Gospel of John because Jesus is the I am and perfection, totality, no problem. So we see the, 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 the genealogy here seems to be intentionally structured with seven, 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 seven. Jesus is the beginning of the new seven and it's just the, the, the new era. Right. Whether you want to call that the millennium or something, we won't discuss in this class. That'll be something for a theology class. All right, am I going too quick? Any questions? Yes. So, Larry, right? Uh -huh. Okay, guys. A, a social question. Yes. Because it's a lot of Jewish overtones. Yes. And I know that's the first time I heard that explained like that, and I always wonder why that was. So there's Eurocentric, there's Afrocentric, 
within the Jewish culture <coughs> map through, what would be a because he's very focused on a lot of Jewish I'd say he's Christocentric, Christocentric. right? Centered on Christ, but Christ as Israel. As Israel. But I would say Israel is defined as God's faithful people. Okay. So one of the problems with the word Israel, right, and you'll hear me say always, I, I don't like referencing the church in the New Testament world because we think church Israel is other two separate things. So I will commonly refer to them as the people of God. Okay. Now you see people of God, Old Testament, New Testament suggests continuity. Right? Church Israel suggests discontinuity, right? And so there's some, some segregation there that's going on. Not, not at all. If, and remember, the word Israel can mean a number of things in Scripture. One, it could be a name of, of Jacob. Right. right? It's an individual person's name. Okay. Uh, number two, it could be the name of the, of, of, of the people of Israel. Right? But it could also be the faithful people of Israel. Well, Paul uses it in the book of Romans. It says, not all Israel are Israel. Right. And, and of course, at one verse, he uses the word Israel two different ways. Not all Israel, which would be ethnic descendants of Abraham, are Israel, spiritual descendants of Abraham. Right. And then there's a fourth way that the word Israel, and this is subject to debate, could be used at least, and that is in reference to the people of God in the New Testament. Are, are we called Israel in the New Testament? And, and that's, that's another discussion for, for another time. So, so, so it's not simply that, 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 that simple there. So I'd say it's Christocentric with Christ as the fulfillment of the promises of Israel. And, and, and I probably will show you some verses to support that as we go. It's Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, but we'll, we'll get there. All right, very well. So that... Uh, yeah, please. Sorry. No, no, no. Never, never sorry. I'm just thinking that... So this sect that came up called themselves the Black Israelites. You think that has something to do that? fourth one has something to do with that? Um... I don't know any, anything about it in particular other than I've seen other groups make such statements um, and I don't find such statements. You know, Paul says in the book of Romans that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Mm. Uh, and Galatians is not a Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. By the way, if you're listening on, on, on the podcast, the question was the, the reference to the black Israelites. Uh, uh, I don't know enough about them to answer that specifically, but I say theologically... Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor female nor female. That's the essence of the new covenant. The racial, gender, ethnic distinctions, socioeconomic, they're gone. Um, and that a child of Abraham is defined as having the faith of Abraham. Or as Jesus says, my mother, my brother, and my sisters are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he's redefining family based around him. And that's why I think it's my answer there. Does that help for now? Yeah, it was, just, it was just, it's all over TV, so. Yeah, all right, sorry, I'm not, I'm not familiar with it, I apologize. Uh, okay, here we go. Now, the story of, of Moses, letter D. Matthew is going to portray Jesus as a new Moses. But he's not a new Moses as though he's an equal with Moses, he's clearly greater than Moses. Uh, and we're going to see this as we get to the Sermon on the Mount, and time is, uh, time is dwindling away, but let me, let me explain. Now, I edited, by the way, this note. So the document that on, that's on your uh, that I posted on the Google Docs has the, has line number one, I believe it is, a little bit differently. I'm, I'm sorry, no, it's, it's line yeah, not line number one, uh, a little bit differently. But what Matthew does, he records the sermons of Jesus, uh, the teachings of Jesus in five sermons, and I put, uh, let, this is letter D, uh, five one through seven twenty seven, chapter ten, chapter thirteen one through fifty two, chapter eighteen. And then chapters 23 through 25, though we can dispute, maybe it's 24 and 25. Either way, let, let, me, let me show you what I mean, how we know that this is accurate. Matthew 7, 29. Oh, oh come on. Matthew 7, 29. All right. uh, I'm sorry, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Okay. Now, the next, the, the next sermon is Matthew chapter 10. So let's go to chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions, remember 728, when he finished these words? Uh -huh. When he finished giving these instructions. Now look at 13, verse 50, what number is that going to be? 53. So 13, what was the first one you read? 728. Matthew 728. It's, it's just the next... Oh, I have to... Uh, uh, Ralph, it's, it's the very next verse after, uh, after when I put you on the outline. Oh, okay. So 5, 1 to 727, just look at 728. If it's chapter 10, then look at 11, 1. If it's 13, 1 through 52, then look at 13, 53. 
1353, when Jesus had finished these parables. Okay. And then we'll go to chapter um, uh, 18, so 19.1. Oops, wrong. 19.12 uh, came up. Let me scroll down to 19.1. Right. When Jesus had finished these words. Right? And then 26.1 will be our last one. When Jesus had finished all these words. Now, the Greek is actually much more identical than our English translations are having it out. When Jesus had finished saying these things, basically that's a long phrase. Now, you've got to remember, repetition of a long phrase is often a discourse marker. Okay, what I mean by that is what we call paragraph breaks. They repeat phrases. We can see paragraph breaks. They have to hear it. So you have to say something that indicates the beginning or end or a transition of something. Each of these five sermons of Jesus are all marked by, at the end of them, it says, when Jesus had finished saying, and either these words, these parables, whatever, uh, you know, he can change. But when Jesus had finished saying one phrase in Greek, it's identical in all five passages. Now, we can dispute if the fifth sermon begins in tw chapter 23, or if it begins in chapter 24. But we can't dispute the ending of any of these five sermons. Because they're all clearly marked by the use of this particular phrase. Make sense? Right, now, why would Jesus have five sermons in the Gospel of Matthew? Because Moses wrote five books. Right? And if Jesus is giving us a new law, which is what we'll do with the Sermon on the Mount in just a few minutes, if Jesus is giving us a new law, if he's the new lawgiver, which we'll see at the end of Matthew 28, he goes up on a mountainside and says, All authority is given to me. Go ye therefore. That's the new lawgiver. Remember, Moses gets the law on the mountain, right? Mm -hmm. If he's the new Moses, then Matthew's going to block Jesus' sermon in five blocks. Okay. Now, the reason why I changed the wording here is because this is, right, from what I noticed on, on the outline that I'd already posted on the Google Docs, is do not conclude... The first sermon parallels Genesis. The second sermon parallels Exodus. That's not happening. It's just Moses had five books. Jesus has five sermons. That, that's, that's the extent of the parallel, if that makes sense. Don't compare the third sermon to Leviticus. That, that's not what's going on. Okay, so moving forward. Uh, now, Matthew 7. Remember we read the end of uh, Deuteronomy, 13, uh, Deuteronomy 30 a little while ago? And here's why we read it. The, the, what, we, what we're going to call the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll take a little bit of time to look at uh, in, in a few minutes, concludes in Matthew 7. The sermon part of it concludes in Matthew 7. Remember Deuteronomy 13? Choose life. I put before you two choices. Life and prosperity or death. Or death and something else. I forgot what it, what, what it was, right? Life And, and remember Deuteronomy? Choose life. Look what Jesus says. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Verse 14. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few those who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruit. Right? Verse 17. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear... Verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down thrown into the fire. You'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Skipping on down. Um, therefore, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it didn't fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and it, and it fell, and great was his fall. I put before you the wide path and the narrow path. I put before you the good tree and the bad tree. I put before you the wise man and the foolish man. Choose life. <coughs> Jesus is resonating in the words of Deuteronomy, of the, these covenant language of, I've given you two options. Choose life. Okay. So, again, we see the, 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 the language of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and the context of Moses. So I put down letter A. Israel is now faced with a choice. 
curses or blessings, wise or foolish, sheep or goats. I'll mention this now because I won't have time uh, later. Matthew 5 is going to begin a sermon with blessed, 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 right? The Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Remember the, remember the law, I'm sorry, the covenant. If you obey, you're blessed. If you don't obey, you're cursed. The last sermon, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you, right? Blessings, 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 blessings. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay? It's the law. If you obey, you're blessed. If you don't obey, you're cursed. That's why I think that fifth sermon probably should begin in Matthew 23, because the 23 includes the, the, the woes. That parallel, and now, Luke is going to do this in one sermon of Jesus, and it's, blessed are the poor, woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are well fed. I'm, I'm sorry, blessed are you who hunger now, woe to you who are well fed. Right? So Luke puts the blessings and the woes in just in one sermon. Matthew's going to separate them into in, in two sermons. Okay? All right. The gospel ends then, what I kind of referenced a minute ago, number three, with Jesus goes up, going up on a mountainside and giving them a commission to the ends of the earth. And if you read Matthew 28 carefully, and, and, and uh, any, any decent commentary will, will, will point this out, uh, uh, you'll note the covenantal language in Matthew 28. Uh, the covenantal language. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That, that's because I'm the great king. That, that's what the king says when he makes a covenant with his people. And that is, I'm the king. And I have all authority in heaven and earth. That's it's covenantal language. Right? Uh, now the promise then is, or and, and then the king says, "Okay, I'm the king. I have all authority. Here's what I'm asking you to do: go to all nations and make disciples. And here's the covenant blessing: Lo, I'm with you always." Matthew 28, 16 to 20, is Jesus's giving of the new covenant in covenantal language. Note. He does so on a mountainside. Right? Verse 11, verse 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Note Matthew 5 is going to be the sermon on the mountain. Where does Moses get the law? On a mountain. What does Jesus do in Matthew 5? He goes up on a mountainside and he says, blessed, blessed, blessed. It's the new law. That's why we're going to spend some time on Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in just a few. Where does Moses die? on Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is in modern-day Jordan. Moses is not allowed in the Promised Land. On Mount, uh, uh, now, Mount Nebo is about 4,000 or so feet in elevation. Remember, Jerusalem is only 3,000, a little under 3,000 feet in elevation. From Mount Nebo, on a clear day, you can see across the Sea of Galilee, I'm sorry, across the Dead Sea Valley, uh, you can, and you can see Jerusalem. It has to be a clear day, and there's not a whole lot of them. Uh, not, not today. Uh, but Moses sits on, on Mount Nebo and he says, go into the promised land. Jesus says, goes up on the mountain in Galilee and says, go into the promised land. But note the difference. The promised land for Jesus has now become the whole earth. Because the covenant promises are being fulfilled. And God's promise to Abraham, this will be key for understanding that, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially as we get into Mark later on tonight. The key is, is God's promise to Abraham was to bless all the nations. And for God's glorious presence to fill the earth. Right? The whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord, is the covenant promise. And in Jesus, that promise is now being fulfilled as God's people are sent out into the, into the nations. Yes, Larry. So, thinking about the covenant language, when Paul in Romans talks about how nothing can separate us from God, my question is this, whether uh, some individual or scriptures directly or indirectly talking about this idea of covenant language, nothing can separate uh, neither height nor death God's oh, right. people from uh, uh, God in this new language. That's the same idea that Paul has. Yeah, it, okay. I, I think I'm, I'm tracking with you. Can I use that? Yeah, I, it's the essence of the covenant <clears throat> is God's dwelling amongst us. Uh, um, well, that, that's the primary feature of the covenant. In the New Testament, God doesn't just simply dwell among us, he dwells within us. And 2 Corinthians 1, uh, Ephesians 1, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as a promissory note, as a deposit, I think the, the, the language is. 
he's a deposit. And this word of the language of deposit is this, is this um, uh, market language. And this idea that I want to buy this from you, Eddie, but, I, but I, I can't pay in full now. So here, take this, something of great value to me, as a deposit. And it's my promissory note that I'm going to come back and pay in full. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it's not like a down payment you know, when you go to a store today and you go to Walmart where you make a down payment. Because I can go to Walmart and say, you know what, I'm not going to buy it after all. Give me my down payment back. The language of the market economy that Paul's using uh, in, in uh, Corinthians and Ephesians is, is I'm going to give you this deposit, and if I don't come back, you keep it. Now, the deposit is the Holy Spirit, which is God amongst us, which is God's way of saying, I promise to come back and pay in full. Mm -hmm. Not only is it God promising to pay in full, which he's not going to break his promise, but he's given us a, his spirit, and therefore, by definition, I will never be eternally separated from God. And so as believers in this new covenant through Christ, I, I can think that if I think that God among me, God not only among me, but in me, am I correct? Am I scripturally sound? Uh, um, it depends on how far you're taking it. Okay. Uh, uh, yes. Um, if we, and we're not going to go into a theology class today, but if we want to go off into the theology of what, what uh, like eternal security, is that where you're going? Basically. Okay, all right. If we go into the theology of eternal security, I would say it's more complex than that. I would say in one sense, remember, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian, so I've got to go there. All right, all right, all right sorry. Uh, in one sense, there's no question about our eternal security in that. Right. Right. Uh, there's this guarantee. Uh, my sheep hear my voice, they know me, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Right. Right. But there's also this grappling. We're going to see this as we go through the New Testament. We're, we're going to have to deal with the book of James. Right? We're going to deal with the, the covenant promises and, and covenant um, warnings in the book of Revelation. Right? Um, and, and, and those warnings and have, have bite to them and have to have bite to them. The one who overcomes, I'll grant the right to sit down with me on my throne. But that implies the one who does not overcome, I won't grant that right to. And if we argue eternal security as my Presbyterian you know, uh, uh, denomination wants me to, then we take the bite out of the one who overcomes. So losing your salvation is... Uh, it's not that simple. <laughs> yeah. People will be, you know. yeah see, see, what we're doing is, is we're asking... I think if you were to ask that question to Paul, he would, he would go, what are you talking about? <laughs> Right? Uh, because it's a modern question. All right? and, and I think, it, I, I think the answer is more complex than that. In, in a general sense, I would affirm, if you are a child of God, you are a child of God. Yeah. And okay, you so know let, me let me and, and, rephrase it. But that's too simple, though, Ralph. Right? Yeah. Uh, we're we're, we're going to stop right now because we can get into a theological discussion. That, that all we're going to do in about an hour is run around in a couple big circles and end up right back where we started. You all know what I mean, right? We, we go in circles and we end up right where we started from. My answer is there's no answer to the question. It's a modern question that God's answer is, I'm beyond all that. Right? It's the same thing with um, predestination. Right? right. right? Predestination and free, and free will. Right. Which one do you believe in? Right. Yes. <laughs> Take care of that one, right? Yeah. right? Because God's transcendent, folks. And as soon as we put God in a box that answers all these questions, our God just became finite. My ways are not your ways, nor are your thoughts my thoughts, nor are my thoughts your thoughts, saith the Lord. Isaiah 55, right? I think, so I think there's a trend. So I think, you see, and I do this as a pastor, right? And, and, and a lot of pastors in the room. And, and that is, in one sense, I've got one parishioner over here who is a brother or sister in Christ, but they're struggling with their faith and they're doubting. And I want to affirm them, mm. right? We want to build them up. And encourage them that in Christ there's neither height nor death nor angels nor demons that can separate from the love of God. Right. Affirm, right, but then in affirming that person, I got this person over here who has this pretend faith in Christ who's being affirmed in their faith. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to affirm them in their faith. Right. Because, because uh, show me your faith by your deeds, mm -hmm. as James says. But as soon as I tell that person that, then this person over here, this... You see, it's this pastoral dilemma. May I rephrase it? Please. Okay, I go ahead. I agree with you. I like your explanation. All right. For the sake of argument, if we all knew what God knows. All right, all right, all right. That'd make a real Hypothetical sense. left there. That's very a big F. I want to affirm you and tell you, irregardless how you even feel yeah, yeah. about where you're at, yeah, God, yeah. God has you. Right, yes, absolutely. For the sake of argument, uh, not if you're this person. 
The correct. But uh, if yeah. this person, God has you. That's correct. You know right now you so that is kind of and, and, and that's what Paul does in Colossians. Right. Who the, the Colossian Christians are questioning their salvation. Don't let anyone defraud you of the prize. Right. Right? Uh, who's delighting in, in visions of angels. And, and he's affirming them in that. Right? But he's not going to do that in Galatians. Right. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right. right? But in Galatians, he says, you receive the Spirit by believing. So the very people who receive the Spirit, which probably means tongues or some spiritual, right? He's, he's, if you follow this other gospel, you are accursed. Mm -hmm. So you see, it's both, it's both ends of the, of the and there's no way, I think in this, I don't think Paul had a problem with this at all. Yeah. It's not until the modern world comes along that we look in these either-or categories of thinking in the Western mind, right? <clears throat> that we can't, we can't handle that. We like it nice and neat and tidy and it's messy. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. We, I think we have to be content with the messiness. Mm -hmm. All right. Hey, let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, now, uh, I'll pick it up. We'll have um, an hour, and, well, have two, almost two hours left. I'll do the Sermon on the Mount for about 35 minutes or so. And then we'll do Mark. Take a break and finish Mark. Very well.